This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're finishing up chapter 11. The way people talk to each other reveals a lot about their relationship and their priorities. So when we get to the end of chapter 11 and we read Jesus' prayer to his Father, we should take note and learn from what transpires. It's in these short verses, just six sentences, that we see much about the love Jesus has for his Father and for us. And we get to hear an invitation that should thrill our weary souls, an invitation Jesus has for you today. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. If you have your Bibles open in Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30, follow along with me. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Precious words of Christ here. The first half of that paragraph, he addresses the Father. The second, he invites people to come to him. Let's look at his appreciation to God in verses 25 through 27. Notice with me that Jesus Christ highlights some of the attributes of the Father. The first one in verse 25, the first half of the verse, we have the Father's immensity. How do we know that? Because of the way Jesus addresses the Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. So the immensity of the Father. He is affirming the transcendence of the Father. The Father transcends space, which means that God does not need creation in order to exist. We do. Heaven and earth was created so that we can live in it. That's not the case with the Father because the Father is always present within Himself outside of His creation. See, think about this. He is present in every inch of creation and outside of creation. You remember Genesis 1 when God said, let there be light, and there was light. In other words, God already existed even before he created anything. He's always present with himself inside and outside of his creation. And for that reason, he is both close and far. Relationally, for example, we learn from the Psalms, Psalm 34, verse 18, that he is near to the brokenhearted. And in Proverbs 15, verse 29, he is far from the wicked. And furthermore, according to Christ's designation here, no one outranks the Father. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Contrary to popular belief, Satan is not co-equal with God. He is not God's evil twin. As a created being, the devil is infinitely inferior to God, the Creator, the Lord of heaven and earth. As the Supreme Lord, the Father is the possessor of heaven and earth, according to Genesis 19, verse 14. Therefore, he has full ownership of everything and maintains total control of the affairs of the universe. That is a very comforting thought, to know that God maintains full control and has total ownership of heaven and earth and the universe, including, my friends, 
your life. Think about this for a moment. When you breathe, every molecule of air lends exactly where it should, where God intends inside your lungs. Not a millimeter to the right, not a millimeter to the left, and travels through your bloodstream at a speed determined by the Lord of heaven and earth in order to fuel your organs so that you can fulfill the purposes that he has for you and so that he can call you home at the exact time he has determined for your life. That is a great comfort to know this about the immensity of the Father from a prayer of Jesus Christ here. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Here's how else Jesus explains this concept here. The Lordship of God the Father. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Here's how the psalmist expresses divine lordship, okay? Psalm 147, verse 4. He counts the number of stars. He gives names to all of them. Now, the picture here is not that God is counting one, two, three, four, five, so that he needs to obtain information because he's omniscient. He doesn't have to obtain information. The idea that the psalmist is trying to convey here is the divine roll call. In other words, he names the stars for the purpose of drafting their flight patterns throughout outer space for what purpose? Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and their expense declares the work of his hands. That's the immensity of the Father here. Now, let's consider that, church. Next time, we give him instructions on how to bless us, when and how much and where to bless us. Now, many folks think of God as their personal assistant, as someone to be contacted in case of an emergency only, like a, like a Bales bondsman. And I know the reason for that. It's lousy preaching. But what we have here, because Jesus loves the Father, he confesses his immensity in the way that he addresses him. Now, what a great way to approach the throne of the Lord of heaven and earth. And we should do the same. How about next time you pray? You get on your knees and you approach God the Father, addressing him by his attributes. Lord of heaven and earth, I address you. Not as my personal assistant, not as a genie in the lamp who needs to bless me the way I want, when I want it and how I want it, but as the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who really is above all things. Because that's what Christ does. And if we're called to imitate Jesus Christ, what a great way to address the Father here. And this is all because Jesus loves the Father. And because he loves the Father, he addresses him by his proper attributes, and we should do the same. But after affirming the immensity of the Father, I want you to see here that Jesus also affirms the Father's sovereignty. Verses 25 through 26. Again, in this short prayer format, Jesus speaks of the Father's ability to act as he wills without permission. Or counsel from anyone because he says here, you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligence and you have revealed them to infants. In other words, the father has a prerogative to conceal or reveal information according to his will. That is what Jesus is affirming here. Now, the father acts according to his will, not randomly, but sovereignly. Everything happens to fulfill his purposes. He always acts in harmony with his nature. So whenever he permits things to happen in your life, whenever he ordains tragedies to happen in your life from time to time, and he does that for his honor, for his glory, and for your growth and my growth, we need to understand that he's acting according to his own nature. And his nature is love because of what John says in 1 John 4, 8. Simply, God is love. So next time you say, well, God can do everything. Not really. God can only do something that is according to his nature. God can never lie. God can never sin. So anytime he allows tragedies to happen, he's acting according to his nature, which is sovereign and is loving. And Jesus Christ is affirming that in his short prayer format. The fact that the Father doesn't owe 
explanation to anyone about his purposes. And how many of you have prayed something like this, Lord, why? Why did you let this happen to me? When the sovereignty of God tells us that he doesn't have to answer that question. Why? Because all we need to do is trust him. So trust our Heavenly Father who cares for us. He is sovereign and He is loving. Whatever He does is perfect. Whatever He does is consistent with His will. And we walk by faith, not by sight, according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. All we need to do is trust the Lord of heaven and earth. Trust that He is loving. He is good. He is sovereign. Whatever He does is perfect. His will is perfect. But while the Father has determined to conceal and reveal truth according to His infinite wisdom, I want you to know, church, He never coerces anybody to do anything. That doesn't mess with free will. Have you ever met anyone who has been kidnapped into the kingdom of heaven? No. Have you come to Jesus kicking and screaming against your will? Oh, of course not. You responded to the gospel like an infant crying out to his father. And we celebrate that our salvation was well-pleasing to his sight. See, that's what Christ is saying here. The fact that the father has concealed information from some and revealed information to others was well-pleasing in his sight. Why? Because it's the sovereignty of God on display. Now listen to what else was pleasing to him concerning you. Ephesians 1 verses 5 through 6. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So we are the direct objects of the love of Christ because of the will of the Father. It was well-pleasing to the Father to save you. It was well-pleasing to the Father to reveal information to you so that you would respond to the gospel and be saved. And for that reason, we should celebrate. And we should pray for the people that are still blind to the truth. And we should go and talk to them about the gospel and hope that they will one day come to faith in Jesus Christ. We've seen so far the immensity of the Father the sovereignty of the Father, but look at verse 27. I want you to see the Father's authority because that's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. He is talking about a sister attribute to divine immensity of sovereignty. They go hand in hand. They operate together. Specifically, Jesus is talking about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. What belongs to the Father belongs to the Son and vice versa by divine decree. And since the Father owns everything, Christ owns all things, including your life. You have been redeemed, the Bible says. You have been bought with a price. Think about that next time you say, this is my life, not really your life. You belong to Christ. Because you have been bought with a price, you have been redeemed, and Jesus Christ owns you, and because he owns you, you have the seal of the Holy Spirit in you, which means you are divine property. And when somebody messes with you, they're messing with divine property. Think about that. You are protected because of the Father's authority. He has authority over your life. He can call you home anytime he wants to. Now, in Matthew 28, verse 18, at the end of the gospel, Jesus affirms that authority one more time, right before the Great Commission when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations and so forth. And you know the reason for that, church? According to Colossians 1.16, Paul says, by him, referring to Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. That's the authority of the Father that he bestowed on the Son here. This means that Jesus also possesses 
every one of the attributes of the Father. He is not inferior to Him, contrary to what many cults will tell you if they knock on your door. Jesus is not inferior to the Father, which leads us here to verse 27, another attribute. We've looked at the Father's immensity, His sovereignty, and His authority. But now Jesus also acknowledges in prayer format the Father's identity. He concludes his prayer of affirmation to God by articulating the type of equality that he enjoys with the Father, the type of equality that exists between Father and the Son. Now, we have politicized that word, equality. We don't even know what it means anymore because we have politicized it so much. And we are in a generation that's so confused about what that is. But what, according to what the Bible says, according to what Jesus refers to here, he's talking about his co-equality with the Father. The Father and the Son and, and the Holy Spirit, obviously. Again, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here. But we're talking about two different members of the Trinity. Now, by referring to the knowledge of the Father and Son when he says, the Father knows the Son and so forth, Jesus refers to the perfect fellowship that exists between those two members of the Trinity. From eternity past and into eternity future, because they are co-equal in nature. Now, we need to understand that very clearly. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. They are different persons of the Trinity, but they share the same essence of God. So they share the same nature, but they don't share the same function. That's very obvious. Who died on a cross, church? The Son, not the Father, right? So they share the same nature, but not the same function. Well, Jesus affirms this co-equality in clear terms when he says in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Well, what does it mean by that? They are one in essence. They share the same divine nature, but not the same function. Now, let me try to illustrate this in a way that is much inferior to, obviously, the Trinity in a, in a reduced scale. Let me try that, okay? My wife and I are one. We are equal in essence. Why? Because we're both people. We're both made in the image of God. We bear the image of God, something that my dog does not have. Although he's part of the household, I guess, but we're not one in that sense. My wife and I are equal in essence, but not in function. How? This is biology 101. Before the foundation of the world, God determined that I as the husband would provide the seed and my wife as the woman would provide the egg for our children's conception. See, we're equal in essence, not in function. I'm supposed to be the dad. She's supposed to be the mom. And because I am united to her by marriage... I don't know any other woman emotionally and spiritually the way I know Denise and vice versa. By the way, do you see why marriage is so sacred and we shouldn't be redefining it? So that's an example of shared nature, but not necessarily shared function. But you say, Pastor, when Jesus says no one knows the Father, I'm a Christian, I know the Father, and I know the Son, I know Jesus. I responded to Him when I heard the gospel for the first time, and you are correct. You know Him, and I know Him in a limited sense. Well, what's that limited sense? Our finite minds can only comprehend so much about the immensity and the infinity of God. Because we have a finite mind, even when we have a glorified mind, think about this. When we go to heaven, we will have a glorified, not a perfect mind, but a glorified mind, which means we will enjoy learning about God forever and ever, and we will never finish knowing God because at the day you figure Him out, He is no longer God. Everything we know about God has been revealed to us because He decided to reveal Himself to us. And we know the Son and we know the Father, but when we get to heaven, we will get to know Him as we are known, the Bible says, and we will spend our days, eternity, getting to know Him more and more, and we will never end. 
We will never finish getting to know God. Why? Because He is infinite. Because He is everlasting. He exists from eternity past into eternity future. We can't even comprehend the frontiers of the universe, let alone the God who created the universe. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. That's fa- this is fascinating. He is talking about the fellowship of co-equality that exists between God the Father and God the Son. He is praising God for that. Why? Because He loves the Father. Now, obviously, we love the Father too, but only because He first loved us, the Bible says in 1 John four nineteen. And the way we love the Father, the way we are one with Christ, the Bible says, right, we are in Christ. It's different than the way the Father and the Son are one here because we do not share the same essence with God. We are not divine. We are image bearers. We don't share the same nature and essence as God. Why? Because there was a day that you did not exist. There was a day prior to 1977 that I did not exist. Now, I have an eternal soul that will live forever, obviously, somewhere. And I know exactly where I'm going to live because of what Christ has done, not because of anything that I can do. And because I have been redeemed, I know where I'm going to go and I will receive a glorified body with a glorified mind. If you enjoy learning about God now, if you enjoy getting to know Him now, imagine getting to know Him in a glorified mind without the hindrance of sin. You see, we love the Father, we love the Son, but the problem is I love myself way too much, more than I should, and that gets in the way because I pursue my own interests instead of pursuing the interests of the Father and of the Son here. See, when we have a glorified existence, a glorified mind, this will no longer be the case, and we will learn about God and get to know Him forever and ever. So the Father knows the Son, the Son knows the Father in full fellowship, complete perfection, in a way that you and I do not enjoy because we're not co-equals with the father we're not co-equals with the son the bible says very clearly we are in christ we are heirs we are children and we are part of the household we are part of the family we're brothers and sisters in christ but we do not share co-equality with the father like jesus does here so let's summarize all of this so far in this prayer that jesus utters here he expresses his fondness to the father by reciting some of the attributes of the Father in prayer format. And that's a great way to pray. This is the application for us this morning, church. Next time you pray, spend some time telling the Father how much you appreciate Him because of who He is, not because necessarily of what He can give you. That's a part of prayer, of course, but Father, I praise You because You are sovereign. I praise You because You are love. I praise You because of Your authority, because You have the power to do everything according to Your nature, and You don't have to explain anything to everybody. I just need to get with the program and take it by faith. We want to express our appreciation to God in a similar way when we pray, and we We can do this in prayer format. So that's the first recipient of Christ's love. Very clearly here, he loves the Father. But I want you to see here the second recipients of Christ's love. You and me, verses 28 to 30. The second half of this short discourse. Hard to know when the prayer ends, the invitation starts. But I want you to see here the second half of this paragraph, verses 28 to 30. Jesus harmonizes perfectly the apparent tension between divine sovereignty and human free will. See, that we have a problem with that. The Bible does it. We struggle to understand how those two function together. Here's the answer. Jesus harmonizes them perfectly. Even though Jesus determines to whom he will reveal the Father, verse 27, that's how he ends that prayer. Then the very next verse, he issues the invitation. Come to me. You see, there is no tension. 
The Son wills to reveal the Father, but now He invites people to come to Him, to know the Father through the Son. Even though Jesus expressed words of rebuke and warnings in the previous scene here, here the majestic Savior demonstrates His tender heart. And He backs up His invitation with two features of His personality that I want us to look at here. Two features of His personality. The first one is His mercy in verse 28. Christ's fondness of people prompts him to come to the rescue of people who are weary and heavy laden. At the point of exhaustion from their attempts at earning salvation, he is addressing those folks. Why? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd, according to Matthew 9, verse 36. Why? Because the self-proclaimed shepherds of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, were putting load upon load on their backs, saying, you have to earn your salvation. You have to keep the law in order to earn your salvation. And they were exhausted. They were not only lost sheep, but they were exhausted. And Christ comes to the rescue and says, come to me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is referring to salvation, the rest of salvation. Remember, those are the folks who are under a system of works, a religion of works that would say, you need to earn God's favor. You need to measure up. And many religions today, many systems of religion today preach that you need to perform. You need to conform outwardly by behavior and leave the heart untouched. There's no salvation when that happens, if the heart is untouched. And Jesus Christ says, no, come to me and I will save you. He is giving them the invitation. In other words, he says, the Father conceals information from some, but I am revealing to you that I will give you rest today. You are given an opportunity to come to Christ today, is what he's saying. I will give you rest. Now, they were very familiar with the yoke placed on animals at that time that, that were supposed to carry the heavy load. And that's the yoke of a performance-based religion. Now, the burden of a works-based religion system is unbearable, just like that heavy load. Because people never know when they have achieved the goodness necessary to appease their God or their leaders or make it to their version of heaven. How many doors do you have to knock on in order to log the hours? How many daily prayers to Allah? How many relics do you need to keep? How many candles do you light in order to be saved? Just talking about it makes me exhausted already. And like the fictitious children, in verses 16 and 17 of the same chapter here, Jesus invites sinners to come to him and say, reject all of that, come to me, empty-handed. Because he loves people, he offers eternal rest to people who are overburdened by their perceived goodness and by their endless attempts to impress God with their religiosity. We're not exempt from that either, church, because we carry over some of our pre-Christian ways into our new life. And many of us think that we need to impress God uh, with how much we know the Bible, and we forget that how much we know the Bible is a product of His revelation to us anyway. Now, we don't have time to go through all of the invitations in the Bible, but let me tell you, the Scripture abounds with those invitations, okay? Perhaps the most comforting of them all is the very last one in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Again, the sovereign God who determines to conceal and reveal information is inviting people to drink freely. Whosoever will may come and be saved. No one is unsavable, church. We need to know that. Not one soul who wants to be saved will be turned away. Christ's invitation is based on His nature, not on ours. Christ invites people not because we are good. Quite the opposite. It's because He is good and we are not. He is gracious, merciful, and compassionate, and kind. 
So that's the first feature of Jesus' personality there, his mercy. But I want you to see the last one here in this passage, his ministry. Verses 29 to 30. He elaborates on the invitation by telling his listeners what to do. You see, he borrows again the imagery of yoke and offers to be united to those who come to him by grace. He instructs believers to abandon the unbearable weight of a performance-based religion. And he invites unbelievers to receive salvation by grace through faith. And to borrow the language of Paul in Romans 13, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like you put on a yoke in an animal to pull the load, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he also encourages his listeners to humble their hearts like infants in verse 24. Why? Because it says, learn from me or learn of me. I am gentle and humble in heart. Why is he saying this? Because he just used the illustration of infants. Learn from me, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friend, do you hear the tenderheartedness of Christ here in these words? Are you overburdened by trying to earn favor with God by performance? Come to Him, He'll give you rest. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to join in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost through the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.